When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the race in my members-only inner circle club. You will receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here's a special offer to my podcast listeners. If you join the Inner Circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com and sign up for a one- or two-year membership, I'll send you a free, personally autographed copy of my book, Gettysburg, and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my Inner Circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com. Use the code FREEBOOK at checkout. Sign up today at NewtCenterCircle.com. Code FREEBOOK. This offer ends January 31st. On this episode of Newt's World. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. From the time President Kennedy gave that historic speech at Rice University Stadium on September 12, 1962, Americans imagined the day on July 16, 1969, when the Apollo 11 Saturn V lifted off from Kennedy Space Center Launch Complex 39A on Merritt Island, Florida. T-minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0.
Aboard the flight and leading the mission was Commander Neil Armstrong, Command Module Pilot Michael Collins, and Lunar Module Pilot Edwin Buzz Aldrin, Jr. An estimated 20% of the world's population watched Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon for the first time. It was a global event. On July 20th, 2019, we'll celebrate 50 years of landing on the moon. I'm pleased to welcome as my guests, Dr. Buzz Aldrin and NASA Chief Historian Bill Barry. On the night we landed in the moon, I was on the way to Brussels with my family to work on my dissertation. And we stopped at a friend's house for the night and happened to be there, able to, with them, watch the landing. And it was a remarkable experience. And as somebody who'd been reading Missiles and Rockets magazine since 1958, it was an astonishing sense of anything was possible. It was an incredible time to be an American. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Buzz Aldrin has been a close personal friend of mine for many years. He is an American icon, and incidentally, the inspiration for Buzz Lightyear in the Toy Story movies. I think you'll find his journey to becoming an astronaut a fascinating one. And just a note about the audio quality, I happened to be in a studio in Rome while Buzz was on his cell phone in Strasbourg. You may at times have a hard time understanding Buzz, but listen closely. It's worth it. As I understand it, your father wanted you to go to the Naval Academy, but you ended up picking West Point. Why did you pick West Point? Well, I told my father that I got seasick when I was summer camp in Maine and went deep sea fishing at age nine. And besides, I wanted to fly airplanes. And why in the world would I want to land an airplane on top of a bobbling short runway on a ship when I could uh, land an airplane on a nice long runway on the surface of the earth? Once you graduated, you ended up flying in the last uh, six or seven months of the Korean War and you were uh, flying F-86s. What was your experience of that combat? You had some mechanical challenges while you are in Korea, which kind of helped prepare you for the mechanical failures on Gemini 12 and Apollo 11. After my second big shot down, it was 50, 60 miles into Manchuria, and I was climbing back south to the base all alone, and it wasn't climbing as fast as I thought it would be. And I realized that I still had my speed brakes out. And, of course, that made me pretty vulnerable trying to climb at not quite the best speed in case some MiG happened to see me heading south. Uh, mechanical. Now, when I came back, uh, I instructed in gunnery at Las Vegas. And one time uh, I was testing an aircraft after it had a canopy change. So I took it up to altitude and then turning the heat up increases the pressure. And all of a sudden there was a big explosion. 
and I looked at the fire warning lights, and everything appeared normal. But the canopy had completely blown off due to the, not pressure, but the ceiling somehow had not been secured. I was uh, aide to uh, General Zimmerman, uh, the dean at the Air Force Academy, when, I, when the first class came in, and I would fly him around and got into kind of a bumpy thunderstorm once and dented up the wings and the tail. And we were landing in a wet runway and I had to open the canopy and had to slow down. We still eased off the runway and 40 feet. But that was really very fortunate, as best I can recall, in terms of incidents with aircraft. So, when you get back home, you go to Germany briefly as a flight commander, but then you go to MIT, and I get the sense by then you, you're already looking at space and the moon. I mean, your doctoral thesis, line of sight guidance techniques for manned orbital rendezvous, how could it be better, considering what you want to end up doing? Well, when I arrived from the Air Force Academy, where was my last assignment for going to Germany to fly supersonic F-100s, when I got over there, I saw a good friend of mine, Ed White, who was in a squadron. He was a year behind me at West Point. And he said, you've got to get into this very spirited squadron, the 22nd Squadron. So I did. And after a while, he rotated back. And uh, when, in 1957, we had been patrolling the border, but then we became tack fighters because of the Russian uh, tanks going into Budapest. So a tack fighter is now on alert with a nuclear weapon. So this happened in mid-1957. So when that little thing went over in the sky, beep, 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 Sputnik, it really didn't make that much of an impression on me. There were other things that kind of occupied my mind. Maybe several months later, Life Magazine came out. So when I went to MIT, there was no real assurance at all I was in a two-year master's program. So when I began to look into things that I might study, another fighter pilot had extended his two-year career, another year and a half or so. I decided I'd do the same thing and then began looking around. And I figured, well, airplanes have to intercept each other and train for combat by intercepting a uh, a tow target. So if you could get on a standard intercept and do the best training, that that's the way we ought to make rendezvous by creating a situation where you can then get on a standardized uh, intercept. And concentric orbits allowed you to do that. So I began to develop a rendezvous philosophy and it just so happened when I turned in my thesis near the end of 62, 
that was just about the same time that a selection was made between heavy lift and big spacecraft of Werner von Braun's and the more sophisticated techniques of John Hoople proposing lunar orbit rendezvous where two spacecraft would be taken to the moon with the crew. Crew two would get in the lander, explore, then come back up with rendezvous for their return back to Earth. A lot of people judge that uh, it may be a little bit risky. So before I left the for my assignment back in the Air Force, I decided, well, let me take my computer runs, punch cards, and change the gravity field of the Earth to the gravity field of the moon. And the rendezvous went to very, very nicely, very easily. So the point I'm making is that my concentric orbit rendezvous kind of dovetailed into the decision for lunar orbit rendezvous so then the rendezvous missions on Gemini program continued to emphasize that. And then during Apollo, we used lunar orbit rendezvous with essentially the uh, concentric orbit techniques that I had developed. Let me ask you for a second, because I noticed that your work at MIT was so groundbreaking and the doctorate that you had made you so different from most of the astronauts that I understand that a bunch of them called you Dr. Rendezvous. Was that true? Well, for the uh, not exactly adoring terminology coming from a Navy carrier landing test pilot to an egghead from MIT, that's not always an enduring term. It smacks of a little jealousy and whatever, all in good humor, of course. As I understand it, your specialty back in Apollo was mission planning, trajectory analysis, and flight plans. So in a way, you have sort of the perfect experience for the kind of thinking you're talking about. I learned that uh, yeah, we went to the moon from the Earth, we wanted to have an assurance that if anything went wrong, we would come back to Earth, and it was called a free return trajectory. We never had to use that. But I wondered years later what would happen if we came back from the moon and then swung by the Earth again and went back out. But the moon wouldn't be there. So we have a couple of holding patterns until the moon came around again. And that became the essence in 1985 of a cycling orbit. Now, I knew at the time, yes, to this disaster, that lunar orbit rendezvous was clearly the best way to get people and things from the Earth to the surface of the moon. When we come back, we'll talk about launch day July 16, 1969, and the valve leak on the Saturn V that had millions in suspense about the mission.
ask a couple questions about what actually happened. I was told that literally when you were on the way to the launch pad, that launch control discovered there was a hydrogen leak in the valve on the Saturn V, and the technicians were literally tightening the bolts about two hours and 43 minutes before your launch, literally as your transport van is pulling up. I mean, did you know about the leak as you were coming up to the launch pad? Frankly, it was a detail that we may have heard something about they're working on a problem and they think it can work it out. But I think all of the crews have either observed or had a slip late in the countdown or the day before launch. And it just is really a nuisance to have to go back and start all over again. So it's something you'd really like to avoid, if at all possible. And, of course, the crew doesn't have control over that. But it's very relieving to hear the countdown. And when it gets down to zero, there's no real noise that reaches up to the command module. But we hear somebody on the ground say, lift off. You can't feel anything, but the instruments began to move. And all three of us remarked afterward that we just had the feeling that we were no longer connected to the ground, but we were beginning to move. And that was really the smoothest gradual acceleration. As you can see to the films that are taken sideways at Saturn lifting off. When you start talking about fuel, I was reminded, if I got this down right, that the fuel was really low on, on the descent during the Apollo 11 mission. Were you ever concerned about fuel in that whole experience? We are always concerned about fuel, but that's a question of fuel consumption, the rate of descent, and how far away is the, is the landing site. But if you want the truth of the matter, LEM-5 on our flight, coming off the production line, a year and a half, two years earlier, was overweight for a landing. Lab 6 was the first lander that was light enough. And if that had been the first landing, it had been the middle of October. But the program manager for Lab 5 wanted his lander to land. So he felt he could count on some reserves from the Saturn V do some other reductions. So he went to see George Lowe and he said, George, if I can reduce the weight on Lem 5, will you guarantee that it'll be a lander? And George says, well, yeah, of course, we want to do more months to be able to get to the moon. So when the crew assignments came out and Apollo 11 had command module 104 and led by, it was going to be the first landing. Now, I didn't learn that until a couple of years afterward. So as I understand you, you actually landed with an earlier, heavier lander, which had worse fuel requirements, so that that particular member of the team could have his lander on the first moon landing. Well... The weight did meet the limits as prescribed, but they were 
not with an overabundance of margin. So other situations came up in the terminal phase, which dictated that we extend the landing a little further downrange. And this, of course, consumes more fuel. We've known each other a long time, and I've never actually asked you this, but when you look back at this magic moment, which in the entire history of the human race, you know, you and Neil Armstrong will always be at a magic inflection point when things were never the same again afterwards. I mean, how does it feel to be that historic a figure and you're recognized all over the world and, you know, and you've continued to be an active advocate for space travel and for scientific advancement? I'm just curious about how you deal with being Buzz Aldrin and being a historic figure. And, you know, you're permanently, as long as human beings are around, you're going to be a figure that's there because you were part of the beginning of the next phase of the human race. Well, we didn't realize that, of course, when when Apollo 12 took off with Pete Conrad and Alan Bean, and they made such a great precision landing. And then Apollo 13 had difficulties with the oxygen tank, and the ground team did what is expected from them, and it was not a miracle that they were brought back. It was that the ground people in mission control did what they were expected to be able to do. And the phrase, failure is not an option, may be a cute phrase, but if you believe that, that means you don't think something's going to fail, so you don't trade for it, because failure is an option. Now, once you have a failure, then you want to tell the people working on it, that they got to bring them back safely. And at that point, failure of the people responsible is not an option. But I think that's a term that is just overused and it bypasses how much effort has to be put into every possible thing that can go wrong and the best you can do to prevent it or to train for how you deal with it if it uh, does happen. What is your favorite memory from that whole experience 50 years ago? When, of course, we got back in after being dusty on the outside, closed the hatch, we connected up to the inside oxygen electrical supply, and then we were disconnected from the backpacks, so we depressurized again and threw the backpacks out the hatch. Now, when they hit the ground, the seismometer that I had deployed, they could hear them hit the ground back in Houston. We closed the hatch, we pressurized again, and having expanded oxygen into the cabin twice, it began to get rather chilly in there. So I uh, used the childhood term for Neil. I take dibs on the floor. That was the only smooth place you could lie down. So I lay down on the floor with my head 
on the co-pilot side, and Neil sat back on the engine cover and rigged his feet up somewhere, so it was fairly comfortable. So I looked over at the dust that we had tracked in, and there was something that didn't look like it belonged there. A little further examination established that it was a broken circuit breaker. So it was on my side of the cabin, so I decided to get up and look at the rows of circuit breakers, of which are out and some of which are in, depending on the needs for that time of the mission. And certainly there was one that was not in and not out. It was the engine arm circuit breaker. That's the one when you get ready to light the descent engine, you push it in. After you land, you pull it out. When you get ready to come back home with the ascent engine, you push it in, and you come back home. Well, if you can't push it in, you may not get back home. So what did you do? That wasn't in the malfunction checklist, and there wasn't a screwdriver to undo the panel and expose all that electricity behind it. So here is where we missed one of the classic terms of space. Houston, you've got a problem. So anyway, we told them what it was, and they said, well, yeah, all right, we're going to get a bunch of people to look into all the circuits to see if we can figure out some way. So while we're doing that, we'll, we'll tell you about it. But you guys up there just go to sleep. Were you able to go to sleep? What the hell else can we do? <laughs> I looked at Neil to, to see if he was smiling. And no, he wasn't smiling. When you got awake, did they solve it? They said we couldn't find any way around this. So we're going to change the procedure. And instead of 10, 15 seconds before liftoff, where you would normally push the circuit breaker in, we're going to try and do something two hours ahead. There's electricity, but I got a ballpoint pen, but that's metal. Maybe that's not too good either. So I had my favorite was a felt tip pen that I used to write the numbers down for the backup procedures, and it stood out a whole lot more than a ballpoint pen. So I used the felt tip pen and pushed it in and Houston says, yeah, we got, we got power. So we got to the countdown, lift off, and we came home. You had to spend 21 days in isolation when you got back. What did you think about for three weeks? Well, we did a lot of debriefing during that time. If you were in quarantine, were they debriefing you by telephone or were they coming in? There was a glass window. And the first debriefing was to executive management. So we sort of started with liftoff. Apollo was, in some ways, the most famous thing you've done. The truth is you've been a leader on getting humans out into space for your entire lifetime, and you've had an astonishing and very long career. How would you like to be remembered? What's the core of Buzz Aldrin that you wish people 
a hundred years from now knew about. I really hope that the contributions of John Hoople that succeeded in designing the basic philosophy of carrying out Apollo, I hope that the expansion of that, which corrects the philosophy of gateway and way stations and is able to use some of those early items to give us either laboratories in Earth orbit or to accelerate getting back to the moon and allowing us to not be hung up on the SLS and Orion because I absolutely feel that a number of people, as we demonstrated, could have joined Neil on the crew of the first landing, but very, very few could have done what I think I've been very fortunate to have been able to do, but it took an education, a curiosity of the mind, and an experience, and a career, and the need to make alterations and corrections as politically unpopular as I'm quite sure they are going to be. I'm very grateful that you agreed to do this. I hope you'll really feel like we did justice to a, your remarkable life. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Coming up, NASA Chief Historian Bill Barry reminds us of the historical importance of the Apollo 11 mission. to be joined by NASA Chief Historian Bill Barry. Bill, as NASA's Chief Historian, what do you think really set the Apollo 11 mission to the moon apart? What historical impact did the mission have? Well, I think four things that I consider the, the legacy of the Apollo program. One is that you know, it achieved the primary political goal of beating the Soviet Union to the moon. It was so successful in doing that that we don't even think about that as kind of the primary objective anymore. You know, people don't even think about the race to the moon. In fact, there really was a race to the moon. Ultimately, the Soviet government depended heavily on space accomplishments as a means of legitimacy, both inside the Soviet Union and outside. And being beaten to the moon by the United States was a really big blow to them in terms of the legitimacy of their government. The undermining of the legitimacy of the Soviet government by beating them to the moon had corrosive effects on their the body politics in the Soviet Union, and I think contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So that's one legacy, I think. A simpler one, perhaps, is we completely changed our understanding of the origin and history of the moon and therefore the solar system and, and a lot about the world around us. So the you know, samples from the moon prove that the moon and the Earth were formed out of a collision of, of two big bodies that recoalesce into the current Earth-Moon system. There's some interesting impacts on what we do things, and what we think about the world and the universe today. The third thing is that Apollo was a huge technological boost to the economy across a broad front. This plays out in lots of different ways, but in part because it was done as an open public program and done with those 20,000 different companies across the United States, the technology that was developed for the Apollo program immediately proliferated out into the public sphere and had a huge impact on the economy. The legacy of Apollo is that 
the program has provided an inspiration to an entire generation, maybe a couple generations of people who went into engineering and science fields in much greater numbers. I'm one of those people. There was a threefold increase in the number of science and engineering PhDs in the United States between the mid-60s and the mid-70s. And even people who didn't go into science and engineering career fields came out of the Apollo experience with a belief that great things can be accomplished. You know, that, that phrase, if we can put a person on the moon, certainly we can do fill in the blank. I think that the Apollo program had a huge impact on the mindset of, of America and the world. The Apollo 11 mission was fueled by the American-Soviet space race, but it was American ingenuity and determination that got us there. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are the human symbols of a mission that proved we as Americans can do anything we set our minds to and decide to invest in. The space race isn't over. The Trump administration, under Vice President Pence and NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine's leadership, is looking at the future of space travel with a NASA program called the Moon to Mars. Working with U.S. companies and international partners, NASA will push the boundaries of human exploration forward to the moon and on to Mars. NASA is working to establish a permanent human presence on the moon within the next decade to uncover new scientific discoveries and lay the foundation for private companies to build a lunar economy. Will it be achievable? It's a great question. One we will explore in an upcoming podcast episode about the incredible next phase of space exploration. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Buzz Aldrin and NASA Chief Historian Bill Barry. I also want to thank NASA for the use of the historic audio featured in this episode. You can read more about the Apollo 11 mission and hear Bill Barry's entire interview about the history of the space race and landing on the moon on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Grace Davis. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, he's been called one of the greatest American spy novelists ever. Number one New York Times bestselling author, Daniel Silva, joins me to talk about his latest novel, The New Girl. Had a couple hundred pages of this story. See this little news item that a contributing columnist for the Washington Post had gone missing. Within a couple of days, it was clear what had happened, and I had to take that entire manuscript and throw it out and start over. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. From BBC Radio 4, 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.